0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Antibiotics are important drugs in treating bacterial infections and preventing the spread of disease. But drugs that used to be standard treatments for bacterial infections are now less effective or don't work at all. Because overuse and misuse of these drugs has led to organisms developing antibiotic resistance.
2: On today's Mayo Clinic radio program, we'll discuss antibiotic resistance and allergies with a Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert.
1: Also on the program, should kids take probiotics? And we'll discuss the dangers of e-cigarettes. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Antibiotics have been used for more than 70 years to treat patients who have infectious diseases. And talk about success. Since the 1940s, antibiotics have saved countless lives and cured, well, literally millions of infections. But... Antibiotics have been used so widely and for so long that now the organisms, the antibiotics are designed to kill, well, they've adapted. You know, these bugs are actually pretty smart. They're so tricky. And that has made the drugs, unfortunately, less effective. Mm -hmm. And there are some bacteria that are resistant to almost all of the high-powered antibiotics we've got.
2: That's troubling. Yeah. Yeah. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, each year in the US, at least two million people become infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and at least 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of those infections. Here to discuss antibiotic resistance is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Napuni Rajapaxi. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you.
3: Thanks. It's great to be back.
1: So we've got a problem, don't we? Uh, resistant bugs, that our antibiotics are having difficulty treating.
3: Yeah, you know, we're starting to see this more and more now and it's becoming more and more common and it's going to continue to become a bigger and bigger issue as we go along here. Um, we're seeing this affecting people across the lifespan, from kids to the elderly. And we think we have a reasonably good handle of what is causing this. So the real issue now is putting measures into place to see what we can do to slow down the process.
2: Not a lot makes me really nervous when we do these radio interviews, <laughs> but this this one does because I always feel like we're it's a movie waiting to write itself.
3: Yeah, you know, we've been uh, pretty lucky so far in being able to uh, develop new, antibiotics and new ways to outsmart these bacteria but they're they're really smart and they're uh, changing at a pace that it's really difficult for us to keep up with to develop new drugs so we're seeing fewer and fewer new antibiotics being developed, and so we're having to come up with strategies to preserve the use of the antibiotics that we have in our toolkit right now.
1: You, you said that you, you were pretty certain that you had a handle on what the causes uh, were. So what are they? Yes,
3: yeah, so it's a very complicated issue, but uh, we do know that the biggest driver of uh, the development of resistance in bacteria as well as other types of microorganisms is the overuse of antibiotics. And so we know that antibiotics are amongst the most frequently prescribed medications to humans, also to animals in the agricultural industry as well. And so that's been kind of identified as the top reason for the issues that we're running into now. Not
2: overprescription for humans, but overuse in the agricultural.
3: So both. So both okay, overprescription to humans as okay. well as uh, use in the agricultural industry. Um, we know that. When you expose bacteria to antibiotics, part of their evolutionary strategy is to survive, and so they can develop mutations that uh, allow them to resist those antibiotics or develop resistance. And so as you have that process happening over time and in uh, many different people and many different animals across the world, um, you start to see that bacteria that used to be quite sensitive to the antibiotics that we have are now developing resistance.
2: Maybe I get sick and I'm on an antibiotic for seven to 10 days, but I'm eating food every day, And if I'm eating food that has antibiotics in it every day, is that a bigger deal? Or is it that it's such a small amount that it's a less important deal?
3: So both issues are uh, important. I don't think we truly know how much each contributes Mm. to the over- lying issue because it's so complex and you have this occurring uh, across the world Um, but we do know that we need to tackle this problem in multiple different ways so that means uh, things targeted towards prescription of antibiotics and humans taking antibiotics but also um, strategies in the veterinary and agricultural industry to uh, decrease the use and potentially eliminate the use of uh, antibiotics in those groups.
1: Why do you think it is that antibiotics historically have been so over prescribed?
3: So that's a, it's a good question and it's very complicated. There are a lot of people doing research into figure out why is it that we've uh, gotten to this situation now. Um, there are a lot of different factors that go into a decision to prescribe antibiotics for a patient. We sit across from patients each day and have complex uh, discussions about patient symptoms and conditions and try and come to a consensus as to what the best path forward is for them. Um, but uh, sometimes there are uh, other factors outside of what is recommended in guidelines or the symptoms that the patient has that plays a role in deciding to prescribe. Um, We do know that it can be very difficult sometimes in an emergency department or in a clinic setting to distinguish the patient that has a viral infection from a bacterial infection. Uh, We have some tests that can help us with that as well but can be challenging, and um, often there's kind of a mentality, both from parents and fr- from patients and from physicians as well, that sometimes the safe thing to do for a certain condition is to prescribe an antibiotic, even though the most likely cause is viral. And as we know, that, uh, antibiotics really have no effect at all against viruses. And so in those situations, we know that um, the risks of taking an antibiotic outweigh any sort of benefit that the patient has, um, both in terms of uh, side effects, but also for this greater issue of resistance in population.
1: <laughs> and it makes the mother or the patient think you're doing something. Yeah. So do you think that's a big part of it?
3: Oh, I think huge. for sure. Um, it's, it's a difficult to sit there and say you have a viral infection there's nothing I can give you really mm-hmm. to help you to uh, kill off that virus aside from your immune system kicking in to help you to feel better but there are other things that physicians can uh, recommend uh, what we call symptomatic treatment so whether that's uh,
1: it's not ac- the same
3: acetaminophen nope. or well, ibuprofen w- for an ear infection sure. things is like it that.
2: then is it just people are imagining that they feel better if they get this, uh, is it the placebo effect? They have a virus but the mom says my kid really needs an antibiotic. Does the antibiotic not help the child feel better at all? We just think that it does?
3: So if you have a virus, an antibiotic will not help you get better. It has no activity against a virus but we know the natural history of viral infections is usually you'll feel pretty bad for anywhere from three days to a week and then start to feel better on your own. Usually that's around the time that you start an antibiotic so probably just the viral infection getting better on its own. So
2: why did they ever think that we should give out antibiotics? Did they just think, oh, there's probably not a big harm to hand out? It makes people feel like they're feeling better. uh, So that's why that was ever started in the first place?
3: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it, uh, as I said, it's very complicated, but uh, part of it is this just in case. Just in case there may be an early bacterial infection or something like that, um, physicians are uh, seeming to prescribe antibiotics to this group.
2: Can a viral infection... become a bacterial infection if you don't get better, if you don't care of it?
3: So a small proportion of people with a viral respiratory tract infection can go on to develop what we call a bacterial super infection after that. Um, So that can be things like a pneumonia or sinus infection or ear infection. However, treating them when they just have signs of the viral infection with an antibiotic does nothing to prevent or uh, decrease their chance of going on to develop that type of infection.
1: So give us some examples of typical viral illnesses that in general, should not be treated with antibiotics. Now, you know, it's not clear-cut, but to give us some examples, of, like mono, for, I was thinking of.
3: Sure, yeah, so for sure, uh, things like mono, so that usually presents with uh, fever, uh, fatigue, enlarged lymph nodes, sometimes sore throat. Um, there's no benefit to receiving an antibiotic for that. It does nothing for uh, the viruses that, that cause mono. Uh, the common cold, so uh, upper respiratory tract symptoms like uh, ruddy nose, cough, um, that, again, is a viral syndrome, and so antibiotics will be of no benefit. Um, many, many uh, sore throats, so probably 95% of sore throats are viral in origin and not related to strep, which is the most common bacterial cause of sore throat. And so uh, sore throat, especially if it's associated with a runny nose or cough or viral type rash, really shouldn't be treated uh, with antibiotics. And if someone does think that strep is a possibility, they should always get a throat swab first to confirm that the strep bacteria is there before. And starting. not give
1: the antibiotic unless it's positive.
3: Yes, that is correct.
1: Ear infections in kids, always used to get antibiotics.
3: Yeah, so many um, ear infections uh, are associated with a viral syndromes it's really important if a physician is uh, diagnosing a true otitis media or um, ear infection we, the current recommendations from the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics are that for a vast majority of kids what we call watchful waiting is uh, appropriate so that means you can wait a couple of days to see if the child gets better on their own and then initiate an antibiotic at that point if not
1: What we need is a good antiviral drug.
3: (laughs) Yes. And then we've got something to give them other
1: than an antibiotic, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. We've been talking about antibiotic resistance with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Napuni Rajapakshi. Time for a short break.
2: When we come back, we'll dive into another topic, but not unrelated, antibiotic allergies, including this myth or matter of fact. Uh, Nine out of 10 people who think they have a penicillin allergy really don't. We'll find out.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Our guest is Dr. Nipuni Rajapakse. She is an infectious disease specialist. We've been talking about antibiotic resistance and all the bugs that have now started to outsmart the antibiotics. But time to switch gears. We're going to, to talk about allergies to antibiotics and we're going to start out with that myth or matter of fact. Interesting.
2: Yeah myth or matter of fact. Nine out of ten people who think they have a penicillin allergy really don't. Is that a myth or is that a fact?
3: That is a fact. So studies have shown that a vast majority of patients who think they're allergic to penicillin the most commonly reported uh, type of antibiotic allergy actually are not.
1: Well someone must have told them along the way that they were or did they? How did just they get say, that wrong? Yeah yeah.
3: Yeah, so there's a a few different scenarios that we commonly run into uh, when it comes to antibiotic allergies. Um, One common scenario is that the person had some sort of event when taking an antibiotic, usually as a young child, um, so they can't recall the event themselves, but they were told by their parent or their parent was told by their physician that they were allergic to this antibiotic and they shouldn't take it again. Um, And the second uh, kind of common scenario is that... uh, Symptoms which are not uh, related to an allergy, so common things like uh, abdominal pain, uh, nausea, or diarrhea uh, that people commonly have while taking an antibiotic are thought to be a sign of an allergy. And so they report being allergic to those medications. So
2: that's what's happening that makes people think that they have an allergy. It's just some sort of reaction, and then they say, oh, penicillin it allergy.
3: Exactly. So it's important to distinguish between having an allergy to something and having a side effect from a medication. So uh, commonly in patients that we prescribe antibiotics for, um, we do see they can cause uh, some uh, stomach upset, some cramping, diarrhea, or non-hives type rashes. What
2: does a true penicillin allergy look like?
3: So the things that we always uh, ask our patients to Uh, look out for. There's a spectrum of uh, symptoms that can present as allergy. Um, The most severe type of allergy that we all uh, worry about and hear about is something called anaphylaxis. That usually presents um, in a few different ways, but the common symptoms being uh, uh, hive-type itchy rash, um, uh, breathing difficulties, swelling of the airway, um, or dangerously low blood pressure. Does that happen when you take the first dose? So um, it, uh, it's a bit complicated. It's pretty unusual for it to happen with the first dose okay. just because uh, usually you have to be sensitized to the uh, antibiotic okay. before, but um, that doesn't go for, for all scenarios necessarily. Um, and then, as I said, there's kind of a spectrum. So even uh, just a hives-type rash developing after exposure to an antibiotic could be a sign that you may be um, developing a more severe uh, allergic-type reaction if you go on to be exposed to that.
1: Is there a way you can tell for sure if you're allergic to a particular antibiotic without taking the antibiotic?
3: So that's a great question. Um, There is skin testing that can be done, usually by allergy specialists, uh, to see if you're allergic to a penicillin. Um, So what we would encourage for uh, patients who think that they may be allergic and are not quite sure is to talk to their uh, primary physician, uh, discuss what their symptoms were, and if they feel it's warranted, they may be a candidate to have allergy skin testing done.
2: But 9 out of 10, that's a lot of people that think that they're allergic to penicillin. Is Does that mean that really I don't have this and now I can use it? Is it penicillin is becoming more widely used now? Uh, it seems like nobody uses penicillin anymore. So if 9 out of 10 think they're allergic to it, that's why. <laughs>
3: no. So uh, the antibiotic penicillin itself, so there's an antibiotic called penicillin. There's a family of antibiotics called penicillin. Oh. Um, and so that family of antibiotics is very commonly used. And so generally, if you report an allergy to um, one Uh, antibiotic within that family people will not prescribe you something else within the entire family and uh, these are antibiotics that are usually the first line or first choice antibiotics for treatment of many common infections And so the reason why it's so important to uh, really sort out this issue is that when we start going to what we call a second or third line or th- choice antibiotics for uh, management of these infections, they're often not as effective as the first choice. They're often more toxic than the first choice, and they're often more expensive than the first choice antibiotics. And so we really don't want to be giving those antibiotics to patients unless we truly believe that they are allergic to the first choice ones.
2: Can people develop a, an allergy to penicillin as they get older, or can they have it when they're young and outgrow it? Can that happen?
3: It is possible over a long period of time to outgrow a penicillin allergy. Um, And you can develop a penicillin allergy even if you've taken it successfully without any issues for multiple courses. Is that common? Um, I would say those are less common scenarios.
1: If you think uh, that the story about uh, allergy uh, to penicillin is suspect, do you recommend that they get skin tested?
3: Yeah, so it uh, depends a bit on the specific patient scenario, especially if they're a type of patient with an underlying medical condition where I would uh, predict that they'll probably need to be treated for infections multiple times in their future. Those patients, for sure, we always like to do what we can to sort out whether they truly are um, allergic or not. Um, Other patients, depending on the story of what happened when they took the antibiotic, we may be able to just tell from the story itself that this was not an allergy and counsel them for that. The ones that fall in the gray area are a bit, bit more difficult to tease out.
1: As a consumer or as a mother, what do you recommend that that we do or that lay people do that might help with the antibiotic resistance uh, issue?
3: So I think um, the best thing that uh, people can do is firstly to uh, try and do what they can to prevent themselves from getting sick. Getting sick can lead to getting prescribed an antibiotic, and that's really what we want to stop so the things that we recommend for prevention of uh, infection really is good hand washing and keeping your immunizations uh, up to date um, of course you can do all of that and still fall ill um, the best thing that we recommend in that uh, scenario is for uh, if you go in to see your doctor can discuss what the symptoms are and make an informed decision along with your doctor as to the best uh, type of treatment for you. So if your doctor thinks that you truly do have a bacterial infection and prescribes you an antibiotic, it's fine to go ahead and take that uh, antibiotic. But it's also important if your doctor thinks that you have a viral illness, uh, not to ever pressure them to prescribe an antibiotic if it's not going to be of benefit to you.
2: Is there another, uh, besides a penicillin allergy, are there other antibiotic allergies that people suffer from that are common?
3: Um, so the next most common after penicillin is usually a sulfa allergy. Um, so that might be an allergy to a common antibiotic called Bactrim or uh, related uh, medications.
1: Now, we have uh, antiviral drugs for, as best I can recall, herpes zoster and for the flu. Why don't we have antiviral drugs for other viral illnesses like the common cold? And will we have soon?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, A lot of these viruses change very much year to year. They circulate very commonly and can have uh, changes that mean that a single antiviral medication is unlikely to uh, be able to keep up with all of those changes and be effective. And so we don't uh, have antivirals for, for common cold or anything like that.
1: But soon we will, and that will help in the overprescribing of antibiotics, right?
3: It may. We'll have to see.
1: I hope so. We've been talking about antibiotics with Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Napuni Rajapakse.
3: Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks
2: for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the dangers of e-cigarettes.
1: Also on the program, should kids take probiotics?
2: Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider, or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. HIV is the virus that can lead to AIDS. A lot has changed about HIV AIDS over the past 30 years. People with HIV are living longer and better thanks to improved treatments. Dr. Stacy Rizza, an infectious diseases specialist at Mayo Clinic says it's important to know your HIV status. So have you been screened for HIV? Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends everyone 13 to 64 be tested for HIV as part of routine health care. Dr. Rizza says a little over a million people are living with HIV in the U.S. right now, and unfortunately, it's estimated that around 15 to 20 percent of them who are infected don't know they're infected. HIV testing is a first step in stopping the spread of the virus, followed by treatment. Now, HIV is a serious infection, but it can be well managed for those who seek care. Treatment is prevention. And in other news, last summer there were many reports in the news and on social media about dry drowning, where individuals, particularly children, drown days or weeks after swimming. While devastating to the families and communities affected, Dr. Michael Boniface, an emergency medicine physician at Mayo Clinic, says dry drowning is a misnomer. He says drowning does not happen days to a week after being in water. There are no medically accepted conditions known as near drowning, dry drowning and secondary drowning and this is from a recent report from the American College of Emergency Physicians. Drowning remains a leading cause of unintentional death for people of all ages, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. On average, Dr. Boniface says there are about 10 people a day who die from drowning. When people experience drowning events, he says, typically one of two things occur. There will be reflexes of panic, agitation, and air hunger. And when you can't avoid taking a breath underwater, fluid will rush into the lungs. This is what we see in about half of all cases, he says. The other type of drowning happens when the voice box closes off known as a laryngospasm. It's a reflex that happens to prevent fluid from getting into the lungs. This could happen if you're below water, holding your breath to the point where you pass out. Dr. Boniface notes that swallowing water while in the ocean or in the pool is not drowning. Drowning is when you can't get oxygen into your lungs. Dr. Boniface encourages everyone to know the risks for and symptoms of drowning and to always keep a watchful eye on children when they are in and around water. So be vigilant and stay safe. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: When you hear about bacteria, you probably think of something bad, something that causes an infection, and and that's certainly true, but there is more to the bacteria story than just an infection. The
2: rest of the story. That's right.
1: Now, the truth is that our intestines are full of both good and bad bacteria all the time, 24-7. And probiotics are the so-called good bacteria that may promote a healthy immune system and improve some common health problems in adults like irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea, or constipation.
2: While we know probiotics can be helpful for adults, what about children? Recently, researchers have been looking at whether probiotics could be beneficial to babies born prematurely or even for healthy infants. Here to discuss babies and probiotics is Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Bob Jacobson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jacobson. It's good to see you.
1: Thanks for having me. (laughs) Dr. Jacobson, good to have you here. So tell us, why all the hype over probiotics? I mean, why mess with Mother Nature?
4: Well, that's a great question, and we've got to be very careful here. You're right. Probiotics are the friendly bacteria that live in and among us and make us healthier. We know that. Science shows that the probiotics that naturally occur in us do good things. But that doesn't automatically mean that we should buy something that says it has probiotics in it or that we should purposely buy a supplement because it has a probiotic. In fact, the answer to that should be no, we shouldn't for several reasons. One, we don't have good evidence that taking probiotics on purpose does any good. Probiotics in this country and in other countries are sold as food supplements and aren't regulated. That means the Food and Drug Administration is not confirming with scientific proof that they're safe or effective. They're not being licensed like drug or vaccines. And we then don't have continued monitoring of their manufacture to make sure they have in it what they say they do on the label and that they're safe. In fact, organizations like Mayo Clinic and other healthcare organizations that conduct research uncover associations with food supplements, vitamins, and minerals that go unregulated as a source of many adverse events. We think about 50,000 are reported every year in this country with uh, materials such as vitamins, drugs, and probiotics. Mm. So I advise my parents and my patients not to purchase probiotics, not to take them. Instead, they should nurture their natural probiotics by eating a wide variety of healthy foods regularly, taking uh, good care of their bodies that contain the probiotics that help them naturally.
2: Isn't part of the situation here that if you take too much antibiotics, that can be harmful to a child or to an adult? and. So, I can see how people are starting to kind of construct this together oh, because I, of what we learn.
4: I understand that. When I prescribe antibiotics for a condition, I first of all make sure they have a condition that benefits from antibiotics, and secondly, that that condition actually needs the antibiotics to resolve quickly. We found over the years, and Mayo Clinic is a good practitioner of this now, that most children. Two years and older actually don't need antibiotics for their ear infections. It's viral. Uh, viral. Well, actually, many times it's bacterial and yet no, but the child so, huh? can resolve the infection without antibiotics. So we're taking steps to avoid antibiotics because of a concern that would dampen the health of the probiotics. But that doesn't mean you automatically should go to the store and buy something that someone claims contains probiotics and take it to restore because we have no proof that works. And we have some evidence that it is not safe. And what's concerning about this is, at least with antibiotics, they've gone through the licensure process to prove the safety and efficacy at the doses prescribed but no one has done that with the probiotics. You don't even know what dose you're getting, despite what's on the label, because it's not regulated like a drug or vaccine. So in fact, I would say it's different from taking antibiotics. They aren't the opposite of antibiotics. Antibiotics are a well-regulated drug used for very specific purposes. Probiotics are regulated like food supplements. Mm. And That means not very regulated at all. And that's why my partners and I, that's why experts across the country say uh, no probiotics as supplements.
2: Did you say are there risks for giving probiotics to children? Oh,
4: yes. Well, let's think about it. Here we have an unmanufactured product that contains purportedly living bacteria. How do we know the bacteria have not been contaminated with another bacteria, a fungus, is actually going to be given to a child who has immune-compromising condition or is on a medicine that um, lowers that child's ability to make stomach acids, such as used with uh, Prilosec or Protonix or similar drugs. That child's at risk to get a gastrointestinal infection on purpose given by the supplement. In an unregulated market, we put our children at risk. We put our adults at risk too.
2: So it's something that is being studied. Someday we might have the answer to that. Oh yes,
4: and in fact, um, researchers, when they study probiotics in their administration, can, in their laboratory, regulate what they're giving, and they know the dose they're giving, and they know the conditions. But that doesn't mean it's replicable or just some other company says, I'm now going to sell probiotics mirroring that study, No agency is confirming that manufacturer is actually delivering the right product in an ongoing way. Indeed, with vitamin and mineral uh, in this country, uh, investigations have even found rodent feces and rat hairs in the products. They're that unregulated. Only a few companies volunteer to have their products carefully monitored. And one has to look far and wide to find a vitamin or mineral that meets the standards that we demand for our drugs and vaccines I would argue that everything that we recommend for treatment or prevention should have the same level of evidence and the same level of regulation
2: what is uh, the study about premature babies that brought you in with us today
4: well there there are studies where they can with supplements that are carefully crafted and monitored give it to a premature baby who Being born premature is at risk for gut injury, helping to create a probiotic flora in the gut and prevent necrotizing enterocolitis and other calamities of prematurity. This is very promising stuff, but it's not ready for prime time. It certainly doesn't mean that our patients should rush out and start taking probiotics, because researchers in a very carefully lab-defined situation found some good. It takes up to 17 years for laboratories to bring a product to licensure by the FDA. And the problem we have with probiotics in this country is that manufacturers can do end runs around that, skip the scientific investigations, proving that they're effective, proving that they're safe, and then put them on the market as food supplements, and then go on manufacturing without any regulation.
1: I really like the way Dr. Jacobson thinks. <laughs> so a lot of false claims out there about probiotics, and you do not recommend them. Correct. All right, we've been talking about probiotics for children and infants with Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Bob Jacobson. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me.
2: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the dangers of e-cigarettes.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: This past May marked 20 years since the state of Minnesota and the tobacco companies reached a $6 billion settlement. At the heart of the settlement was the fact that tobacco companies were targeting youth and teenagers with their advertising. Now, some of the settlement money was used to fund public health programs and anti-smoking campaigns with an emphasis on teens and young adults.
2: While the number of teens who smoke cigarettes has fallen, a new option has emerged, electronic cigarettes, also referred to as e-cigarettes or vaping. Are e-cigarettes a safe way to smoke? Here to discuss is Dr. Taylor Hayes, director of Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hayes.
1: Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Hayes, whoever invented the (laughs) e-cigarette?
5: Well, the, the e-cigarette was probably invented by uh, some folks in China, Ruan Company, somewhere in the mid-2010-11 range. It didn't catch on quickly, but since 2011, it definitely has grown in interest and use, particularly through Internet sales. And I guess the thing I'd point out is that <laughs> we talk about e-cigarettes like it's one thing, and now it's not one thing any longer. What there do you are, mean by that? There are probably 500 different devices you could purchase on the Internet and about 8,000 different solutions that you can use in them. So it's uh, also gone through several generations. We used to have what we called cigalike e-cigarettes. You can still find them. You, they look like cigarettes. have a little LED light on the end that, that uh, looks like the, the burning end mm-hmm. of the rod. And... Um, then there were refillable versions, and now they're called mods or modifiable. They typically have tanks; they have all the elements: a, a heating element that's powered by a battery and a tank for a solution. But they are larger. You can uh, interchange components. You can alter the voltage and amperage uh, on the devices. So, quite sophisticated. <laughs> very sophisticated. <laughs> yes. So, what's in there? So the basic device is, as I said, I. A power source, an energy source, a battery, typically a a lithium-ion battery nowadays. A tank or some kind of uh, cartridge that holds solution. And typically the solution contains nicotine, but not always. It Mm. may may contain other flavorants uh, as well. Uh, And so when you use the device, uh, the heating element that's powered by the battery aerosolizes the solution, and then you can inhale it. Hmm. So that's what the battery is for. It's, it, it's a liquid that you put in there, and then the
1: battery uh, provides the power to aerosolize the, the liquid, and then right. you inhale it.
5: Right. Electric heating element is powered by the battery, and that heating aerosolizes that solution, and then you inhale it.
2: When Dr. Shives asked who came up with this, I thought the answer was tobacco companies. I thought tobacco companies invented e-cigarettes, but they definitely are on board, aren't they?
5: Yeah. Well, in a way, there were. uh, The the, uh, tobacco company that's supported by the Chinese government, or at the time was, uh, was the developer. Uh, Tobacco companies are invested in e-cigarettes, but it's really still, I think, the Wild West, (laughs) because although the FDA has taken on regulatory authority, there really aren't very many regulations put in place for Uh, what devices can come on the market and what kind of things that they can have in them or how they can be used and so forth.
1: Are they safer than smoking?
5: I mean, the the very simple answer is yes. Combustible tobacco is much more dangerous than e-cigarettes. So at the highest level, we'd say, yeah, fewer uh, harmful substances are in e-cigarettes. We think. We, we, we believe, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, there's some data to suggest that although you can find some of the same substances in e-cigarette aerosol as you can find in combustible tobacco smoke, far less. Hmm. So um, they are safer in that regard. I, the, the more detailed answer to the question is we don't know what the net public health effect is going to be as e-cigarettes continue to diffuse in the population. You commented on youth use of e-cigarettes. So, good news, tobacco use is down in youth. Bad news, e-cigarette use is up, and uh, I think all the data suggests that kids who use e-cigarettes are more likely to convert to combustible tobacco, Mm -hmm. and more likely to use combustible tobacco more heavily if they've been an e-cigarette user. So the net public health benefit is uncertain, and I think that's where the arguments lie. But
1: most of them do contain nicotine, right? I mean, the kids smoke them or anybody would smoke them because of the, of the nicotine, mainly? Yes. I mean, not just because Mostly. it tastes like a
5: strawberry or whatever. Uh, it's unclear. I mean, obviously, that's the marketing ploy, right, to, to flavor the, the solutions. Um, and just as an aside, the FDA really got on a company for marketing a solution that was marketed as juice mm-hmm. in a box that looked like apple juice box. So they immediately got on them for that. But um, I think the marketing to youth, the flavorants and so forth, do play a role. Most of them contain nicotine. The problem is that the labels aren't always accurate. So we don't always know that they contain the specified amount. And sometimes things that say they contain nicotine don't. And on the other hand, some things that say they don't contain nicotine may. Mm -hmm. uh, Because there's no good manufacturing process that the people are held to. You could make it in your basement if you want to and sell it on the internet.
2: When e-cigarettes first came around what I remember hearing about them was oh if there's no smoking you know in this area you can use the e-cigarettes to make your way around that or you use e-cigarettes to help you quit smoking. Is there any evidence that e-cigarettes help you quit smoking?
5: So for adults there is some evidence it's quite limited that it may help uh, people quit using combustible tobacco. Um, There's some evidence that the more often you use an e-cigarette, the more likely you are to ultimately quit using combustible tobacco. Mm. On the other hand, currently most adults who use e-cigarettes are dual users. They continue to use tobacco (laughs) uh, and smoke e-cigarettes. So again, this issue of public health benefit, unclear. If an individual asked me, if I completely switch from smoking cigarettes to smoking e-cigarettes only and exclusively, will it reduce the harm? Almost certainly the answer is yes.
1: What's the uh, attraction for a teenager? And I guess, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the same question would go for tobacco. I mean, a, a lot of the kids, when I, when I was a teenager, smoked. I don't know exactly what the attraction was, but I guess it made it made you feel more grown up because older people smoked. But, but so, what's the attraction for an e cigarette? I mean, do they think it does it look cool or? Well,
2: that and the fruit, a mom of a teenager. the fruit. Oh, <laughs> don't get me. The fruit <laughs> flavor th- that does have nicotine in it. The ones sure. that kids are smoking. Yeah,
5: so the solutions that are mostly marketed to students and youth are flavored, uh, and so I think that has an attraction. Uh, not just fruit flavor, but gum flavors and mm-hmm. all kinds of things, and the packaging is packaging is attractive. Now, Dr. Shives, you're asking me to remember what it was, what I was thinking when I was a teenager. <laughs> that's that's hard. So you, what drives that? I, I think it's acceptance. We know kids who are more um, open to experience, more sensation-seeking, are likely to do it. They're more likely to use if their parents use, more likely to use if their siblings use, and more likely to use if their friends and close associates use. So it's, it's uh, probably a social thing as well.
1: All right, we've been talking about e-cigarettes with the director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, Dr. Jay Taylor-Hayes. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
2: Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at Mayo Radio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. You've been listening to
1: Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for joining us.